0: Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us the wisdom to perceive you, the intelligence to understand you, the diligence to seek you, the patience to wait for you, eyes to see you, and a heart to meditate on you. And I pray that you give us a life that will proclaim you. And we pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name, amen. That's actually a prayer from St. Benedict, if you're wondering. Great prayer. Well, our study begins with the fourth of four important therefores in the book of Romans. And as you know, we've talked about this. When you come across the word therefore, when you're reading the Bible, you want to find out, say it, what it's there for. Exactly. So, and in, in to kind of review and get us up to where we're at, the first one, significant therefore, is found in chapter 3, verse 20. This is where Paul says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We can refer to this as the therefore of condemnation because it reminds us that every human being is guilty before God. And that if we got what we deserved, none of us would spend eternity with God. We would be eternally separated from him. But since the time of Adam and Eve, humans have tried to justify themselves by works. Even in the garden of Eden, Adam tried to make himself presentable to God by making coverings out of fig leaves. And he failed in Job, the oldest book of the Bible. The problem is presented clearly in Job nine verse two. How can a man be righteous before God? That's the question. How can a man be righteous before God? God makes part of the answer clear through Paul. The answer is not in the performance of good works or in keeping the works of the law. So when you think about on a macro level, what is the biggest problem in the world? It's one of the questions I like to ask students when I'm trying to get them engaged in spiritual conversations. What do you think the biggest problem in the world? The Bible says it's sin. And the fact that every human being is a sinner and guilty before God. And Paul makes it clear, it's impossible for us to save ourselves. Now that's the really bad news of the gospel, but the second therefore in the book of Romans presents some pretty good news. And that's in chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's some of the best news ever. We can refer to this as the therefore of justification. In Romans 3, verse 5, Paul explains what God did to redeem human beings. He sent his son, Jesus, to live the life that we were meant to live, a life without sin, and to die the death that we deserve to die on the cross for our sins as our substitute. So that when we place our faith in Jesus, we might have peace with God and a restored relationship with him. That's great news. It's like the best news ever. That's why we call it the gospel. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The therefore of justification declares a profound truth that those who trust in Christ alone are treated as if they never sinned. Jesus took our sin upon himself and paid the price that we deserve by dying on the cross. And then he gives us in exchange his righteousness. We often refer to this as the great exchange. When I was in seminary, I remember one, my professor saying, you know, the word justification, think of it in this way just as if you never sinned, just as if you never sinned. That's how God sees us if we're in Christ. But that's not all. There's a third therefore. The next therefore comes in chapter 8, verse 1, which Jim talked about last week. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Powerful verse. This, therefore, was written in the context of Romans 7, where Paul is not dealing with salvation in the chapter 7, but he's dealing with the problem of how believers can do anything good when we have such a sinful nature. How can a holy God ever accept anything that we do when we have, quote, no good thing living in us, as Paul writes in Romans 7? It would seem that he would have to condemn every thought and deed. But this verse tells us there's no condemnation because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that fulfills the righteousness of the law in us. And we receive this declaration from God's court, from his courtroom, though we certainly deserve condemnation. We receive the standing because Jesus bore the condemnation we deserved. And now our identity is found in him. And he is condemned no more, and neither are we. So this talks about our position in Jesus Christ. The basis of this wonderful assurance is the phrase, in Christ Jesus. And it's found all throughout the the New Testament. In Adam, we were all condemned. But in Christ, there's no condemnation. The verdict is not less condemnation, which is what many tend to believe, that thinking that our standing just has improved in Jesus. Our standing has not just improved a little bit, it has been completely transformed. Changed to the status of no condemnation. And that brings us to the fourth, therefore, in the book of Romans, which starts our study this morning, which is in chapter 12, verse 1. And this one might be one of the most important therefore, in the Bible. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you. Notice he says, I urge you. He doesn't say, I command you. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship you know it's paul's pattern when he writes and it's purposeful that he always starts with a strong doctrinal section and then he follows that with practical exhortations on christian living and they kind of gets the order wrong religion is i obey therefore i'm accepted by god i obey god and then i get accepted i earn his acceptance But the gospel is I'm accepted by God through what Jesus did on the cross. Therefore, I obey. So that order matters. This is the therefore of consecration. Because all these things are true. Think back on the whole book of Romans. Sin, we're all guilty of it. Salvation, Jesus saves sinners. Sanctification, the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. In light of all that. The only logical response is to surrender as a form of worship and service to God. You see, we don't serve God in order to receive his mercies. We already have them. We serve out of love and gratitude and appreciation because of his mercy. So I want to just spend a few minutes on these first two verses in chapter 12 because I think they're so important understanding them is crucial. So just to reiterate, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then in verse two, he goes on and says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when Paul writes, therefore, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's saying something like this. You know, based on all that I've written to you so far, that everyone is bound under sin, that justification is by faith, not by works. That everyone inherits sin through Adam, but in Christ is made alive. That we died and rose with Christ. That sanctification is through the Holy Spirit. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. That, that God is sovereign in all he does. That God has a future plan for Israel in chapters 9-11. Based on all of this, I urge you to present your bodies, your entire selves as a living sacrifice to God. So he starts off with the mercies of God. And there are probably dozens and dozens of evidence of mercies of God. But here are just some of them. Consider the mercies of God already told to us in the book of Romans. God credits us righteous apart from, the, from works. God offers justification and redemption. Jesus' sacrifice provides atonement. God takes judgment on himself. God is forbearing and patient with us. Our transgressions are forgiven. Our sins are covered. Our sins are not counted against us. God gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead. God makes peace between us and him. God poured out his love into our hearts. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He demonstrated his love for us that while we were still in open rebellion to him, he died for us. He saved us from his wrath. He reconciled us to himself. He gives us eternal life. He provides an overflowing and abundant provision of grace. He's allowed us to die to sin. God gives us a new life. He allows us to bear fruit. He frees us from condemnation. He makes us his children, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. God shares his glory with us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. God works for our good. He conforms us into his likeness. He is for us not against us. God doesn't bring charges against us. He provides his love from which we can never be separated. He saves all who call on him. And then he even allows those who don't even seek him to find him. In light of those mercies, God calls us to be living sacrifices. Now, this whole idea of like living sacrifices, that would have got Paul's readers' attention, But there are two really good examples of living sacrifices in the Bible. The first one is Isaac. Think about Abraham and Isaac. Think about the journey Abraham took with his son Isaac to the place where he was going to make a sacrifice. Isaac willingly put himself on the altar and he would have died in obedience to God's will. But then the Lord sent a ram to take his place at the last second. So we could say that Isaac died just the same. He died to, to self and willingly yielded himself to the will of God. And when he got off that altar, Isaac was a living sacrifice to the glory of God. Just think about that story. It's amazing Isaac didn't run away when he realized <laughs> what was going on there. Like when he says, hey, dad, uh, I see we got all this stuff for the... The sacrifice, well, where's the sacrifice? It's amazing. He just didn't take off and run, isn't it? But he willingly gets off the altar. So that, that, that's an example of a living sacrifice. But the best example and the ultimate example of a living sacrifice is Jesus himself. Because he actually did die as a sacrifice in obedience to the Father's will. But he rose again. And today he's in heaven as a living sacrifice bearing in his body, the wounds of the cross. He's our high priest and our advocate before the throne of God. And we've mentioned this before, but a lot of people say, well, the problem today is like with, with the whole concept of being a living sacrifice is that we keep crawling off the altar and it's true. We do that. But what does it mean to be a living sacrifice today? Being a living sacrifice means that every day, every hour, every moment, we've got to deliberately, consciously, continually offer ourselves to him. We're not living the Christian life unless we put to death the idea that we have a right to live as we choose. Boy, that's tough for Americans, isn't it? Let me say that again. We're not living the Christian life unless we put to death the idea that we have a right to live as we choose. This is the essence of the Christian life. You put to death the right to live as you choose. You put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. You put to death that you know what's best and what should happen in your life. And it feels like a death when you say that to God. When you say to God, God, I know you know what's best and I just trust you. That's a tough thing to say, especially when you're going through some difficult trials and tribulations or when things don't work out the way you think they should work out. It feels like a death, but on the other side of that is life. A living sacrifice leads to life. Listen to this story. It's a true story. Back in the 1930s, and you have to kind of put yourself in that historical context, there was a young girl, she was 15 years old and she was at a Bible conference. And at this Bible conference, not only did she commit her life to Christ for salvation, which was awesome, she also made a commitment to serve him on the mission field in Asia, one of the hardest places to be a missionary at that time. And unlike a lot of young people who maybe make a commitment like that and waver, she did not. She stuck to it. In her teen years, she talked to all the different mission agencies. She just gave God her life. She's like, I'm giving you my life, God. The mission agency says we have two requirements for you. The first is you got to be trained. The second is you got to be married because of how difficult and dangerous it was to serve in Asia at that time. So before she graduated from high school, she sat down, she wrote in her journal. She said, Lord, I take my hands off my life. I give you everything. I don't care about a comfortable life. I don't care about, you know, a safe life. I'm going to give you my whole life. I'm going to live my life as a, in missionary service to you. And I'm going to go through all the training I have to. But there's one thing I need from you. You know what that one thing was? husband so off to bible college she goes she got all the training she needed but on the day of her graduation after four years no boyfriend so she goes all right so she goes i'll get a master's degree so she goes on she gets a two years master's degree but on the day before she graduated she (laughs) admits that she was a very angry young woman She had done everything for God, but God wasn't keeping his end of the bargain. And so she writes this in her journal, and this is where I think it's interesting. She says, God, how could you do this to me? I have nothing else I can do. I have nowhere else to go. I put everything into this, and I have no other prospects. I've committed my whole life to you. I took my hands off my life, and I asked you for only one thing, and you didn't do it. How can you do this to me? Put yourself in her shoes. So she wrestled and struggled that night. And then suddenly she came to her senses. She realized that she'd been kidding herself. She realized that she wasn't miserable because she had taken her hands off her life. She was miserable because she had never taken her hands off her life. She realized that she had developed an idea of what a noble life was, that, if, if she could live this life, then this is all that matters, that she would have value and she'd be a person of worth. She was telling God the kind of life that he had to give her. She realized she was using God, not serving him. She hadn't taken her hands off her life. So finally that night, she takes her hands off her life. I don't know the rest of the story. I don't know if she ended up, you know, yeah, you're all like, what's the rest of the story? But here's the question. The whole point of this story is this. This is the question for today. And this is how it relates to Romans. If that little girl never really took her hands off her life, do you think you have? If she hadn't, and all she went through, all that she did, do you think you have? That's the challenge, right? So this whole idea about being a living sacrifice, this is huge. What keeps us from living out Romans 12.1? Well, the answer is found in Romans 12.2. Probably the world. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. I think it's easy for us as believers to think that we're leading when actually we're just following the ways of the world. We must be careful. And let me give you a silly example of this. Imagine if for the next five years in Hollywood, all they promoted were bald actresses. Every woman was bald in every movie. How long do you think it would be till we would see bald women in our churches? How long would it be till, you know, people would start shaving their heads? Probably a lot shorter than you would like to think, right? But we don't realize how the world is trying to press us into its mold That's what it means to conform to the pattern of the world. It's trying to press us into its mold from the outside in when we're called to be transformed, which is from the inside out. And that's let's talk about being transformed. The the word for transformed in here is metamorpho. Sound familiar? Yeah, metamorphosis. You think of like a, a tadpole becoming a frog and, you know, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly metamorphosis. It's a, it's a radical word. And this is what we're called to, this is the kind of life we're called to live. It's a word that's used of Jesus twice in the gospel. When he transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John, it describes a change within You see, the world wants to change us, change our minds, and so it exerts pressure from the outside, but the Holy Spirit seeks to change us from the inside out. The world wants to control our thinking, and if the world controls our thinking, we're a conformer, but if God controls your thinking, you're a transformer. Every Christian is either a conformer, living for and like the world, or a transformer, Daily becoming more and more like Jesus. So this word metamorpho is found in four places in the Bible. Two have already talked about twice in the Gospels when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. But it's also used in 2 Corinthians 3:18. It says, And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So how are we transformed? It's not outside in it's inside out. And I think one of the challenges for us as believers is to continually push the gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts and minds. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, daily meditating on all that he's done for us, like those mercies that we talked about earlier, daily thinking about his love for us. And as we push the gospel deeper in our heart, it will grow and grow and change us from the inside out. One of the greatest compliments that a person can give you is when they say that they see a reflection of Jesus in you. And that's what happens when we're transformed. We become more and more like him. We become less, he becomes more. Let me pause here for some comments or questions.
3: All right, first off, you're no Paul Harvey. For now, for the rest of the story, okay? Uh-huh. The other thing too is, is, and I think you've alluded to it in, in passing, is the fact that sometimes when we read scripture, we tend to focalize on a scripture or a section. This letter to the Romans was a whole argument from front to back. And like you've gone through from the beginning, you had the first, first, therefore the second, the third, and the fourth. But that was the whole argument. And I think sometimes what we should do is get rid of all the chapters and verses and read it straight through. Mm. And you understand that this is a complete argument for who we are in Christ. And I just thought that that was something that sometimes we make that mistake of that we segment it. And we miss the bigger picture. Excellent
0: thought. Thanks for sharing that. There are Bibles out there where where they remove the... And that is, it it actually makes you realize this was a letter. Like, when we read it, we're like dissecting it a lot of times. Yeah, Tom.
4: You know, when we pray, we say, Thy will be done. But then you, you really, when you're asking for something, are you really saying, Thy will be done? Are you saying you know, God, your will should be what I believe. Mm. And it, I find it difficult sometimes to pray. I mean, really, all it's necessary is thy will be done and to focus on that.
0: Yeah. Good, good, good thought. I struggle with that too. I mean, that, that's one of the hardest prayers to pray is not my will, but your will be done. Because if you're like me, you think you know how your life should go and what's best. But Louie,
4: one of my favorite verses, it was the first verse I ever memorized. It was Matthew 633. And it's clear. It says, first, seek the kingdom of God, which is the father and his righteousness, the son, and all things will be added to thee. It's good instructions. If we seek him first, we'll have everything that we need. Mm -hmm. And there's two verses, promises in scripture. You should talk about this. One says he's greater than our hearts. And he's also promised us that he's greater than the world. And that gives me comfort. And I rest in knowing that he's overcome our hearts and he's greater than the world. All right, Doug.
5: My question is or comment, what is or how do we pursue transformation or metamorphosis? Is that an active part of us or is this something that Christ does in us? Do we have to seek it and work at it, or does this happen naturally?
0: I think it's both. I think we, we have to seek it. I think that's where the spiritual disciplines come in, having a daily quiet time, meditating on the scripture. But the thing about it is you can do all that stuff and do it like a religious person, you know, but. I like to look at it like this. I don't have to read the Bible. I get to read the Bible. I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church. I don't have to fellowship with other men. I get to fellowship with other men. I don't have to pray. I get to pray. To me, it's, it's it, the motive of your heart is so important because so often we're operating under like the religion. Like if I do all this, then God will bless me. You know, I got to do all these things. Gotta... So it is, it is us. It, it, we, we have to use our will. That's where, you know, it, it's, it's our minds, our hearts, and our will. We've got to surrender our hearts, minds, and will to the Lord. And it's a challenge. It's a struggle. Every single day, the world is trying to press you into its mold. And that's why it's so important to daily be in the word and daily be in prayer to meditate on scripture to memorize scripture not because you have to because you get to and it changes you from the inside out and that's where the holy spirit you know it's us working with the holy spirit that is when it gets real magical and it, you begin to realize man I'm I'm changing I'm not the same person so let's move on we're going to have another time for questions and comments it's so important to keep in mind chapter 12, verses one and two when you read the rest of the book of Romans, Because if you didn't, it can look just like religion, a bunch of commands, "This is how you should live, da da da. da. But it's all about being transformed. So Paul shows us what a transformed life looks like. It looks like a body that works together and serves one another. It looks like people who actually love and care for one another. It looks like people who bless people that persecute them. It looks like people that don't pay back evil for evil, but instead pay back good for evil. It looks like people that don't covet or steal, but love the way Jesus loves. Chapter 13. It looks like people who deny themselves in favor of caring for others. In chapter Fourteen and fifteen, when we talk about preferences and disputable matters, gray areas, it looks like people who are serving together in ministry. Chapter sixteen, one of the things in chapter sixteen, there's like twenty-seven names mentioned in chapter sixteen, and I think sometimes we think the Apostle Paul was like this lone missionary, like it was, like he was just out there starting churches that, you know, it was all about him. In chapter 16, he recognizes 27 people by name that helped him. Like this was a, a lot of people involved in spreading the gospel. So I came up with a silly illustration. We'll see if it works out. And I'm sorry for my graphics. I wish I, I I wish I was a better better at graphics, but perhaps transformation looks something like this. It begins when we trust Christ for our salvation. It's like, I found Jesus. Yeah, that's great. You know, I don't know if that was your experience, but it kind of relates to my experience. But then we begin to see the depth of God's love for us, and the cross begins to become more significant. First Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. But then we continue and we think about what Jesus has done for us through the cross, it becomes even more prominent in our walk with God. Like John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And then second Peter, Peter wrote, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ, grow in grace, grow in grace. What does that mean? I think it means the cross keeps getting bigger and bigger. And then, we can say, like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May I never boast except in the cross. When that happens, everything changes. It affects all our relationships. We can even get along with Christians we disagree with. You know, we're going we're to get to that in a second. But let's move on. Could I have somebody read chapter 12, verses 3
1: to 8? Ray, would you mind? For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function so in christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others we have different gifts according to the grace given us if a man's gift is prophesying let him use it in proportion to his faith if it is serving let him serve if it is teaching let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully.
0: Thank you, Ray. So as we grow in grace and and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can serve God by using our spiritual gifts. And it's interesting that Paul in verse three reminds us that we need to stay humble and we need to avoid spiritual pride because that can happen. Now um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about spiritual gifts, but there are seven spiritual gifts mentioned in this passage, but there are other lists of spiritual gifts found in the Bible in first Corinthians chapter 12 and in Ephesians four. And in first Peter four, There are probably over 20 unique spiritual gifts, depending on how you count them. Now, spiritual gifts are special gifts. They're not natural talents for every believer given by the Holy Spirit. The purpose is to build up the body of Christ for the common good. And the Bible teaches there are speaking gifts, there are service gifts, and there are sign gifts. And when you take into account our personalities... Our natural talents and our heart's desires, and then add in spiritual gifts. What you realize is that every human being, every believer, every follower of Christ, has their, almost like a fingerprint. Everyone's unique. So it's not like all the evangelists or the have the same act the same, say the same things. That, you know, we're all unique. And what that makes me realize is that each of us are uniquely gifted to reach and disciple and minister to others for the kingdom. In other words, there might be people that you, you are the only person that can reach a certain individual because of your unique mix of gifts. And that's pretty exciting to think about. It's not just the pastors that do all the effective ministry. There's people that you might be the only person that can reach them. Because of your spiritual gift. And it doesn't have to be the gift of evangelism, by the way. Okay. So then he goes from spiritual gifts to this like litany of 30 commands. Remember I told you, he says at the beginning, I urge you. He's like urging them. He's begging them. He's not commanding them, but now he's laying down some commands. And that's where I was saying earlier, if, if Romans started with these commands, we could get this backwards. We could totally misunderstand what he's trying to say. But in light of a transformed life, this is how we can live our lives. Could somebody read this? Chapter 12,
6: 9 to 21. All right, Rex, thanks. one another do not be haughty but associate with the lowly never be wise in your own sight repay no one evil for evil but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all if possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thanks, Rex. That was great.
0: Man, there's so much like meat in, that, in those verses. Like every verse is just jam packed with some amazing, profound truth. I mean, if all you did was verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer, You'd be a transformed person, but you see there's over and over 30 commands of what a transformed life looks like. Then he talks about our responsibility with government, dealing with government authorities. How should a transformed person live under a difficult government? Somebody read this, verses 1 to 7, chapter 13. Anybody got it? All right, Dave, thanks.
2: Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed all will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear to a good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you to be good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. And it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon those who practice evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax upon tax which is due, custom to custom. Fear to those who fear, and honor to whom deserve honor.
0: Thanks, Dave. So here, Paul discusses our responsibility to government or our civil duties. Now, Rome was not a democracy, as you know. It was an autocracy. And this was written during the time of Nero, who was known to be a tyrant. In fact, here's some interesting facts about Nero that you may or may not know. He became emperor when he was 17 years old. And so he relied on his mother. His mother was basically giving him all the advice, telling him what to do. So what does he do? He murders his mother. But not only did he murder his mother's. He murdered his two wives. He was immensely popular early in his reign. He was accused of orchestrating the great fire in Rome that we've all heard about. And he blamed that on the Christians, which started a tremendous persecution of Christians. The place where the fire was, he built a golden house, apparently just some crazy house with incredible amount of money. He built that in place, And he competed himself in the Roman Olympic games. And one time he almost died because he was actually competing. Uh, You know, I told you he killed his two wives, but then he had a servant. He castrated and then married his former slave. But ultimately the last interesting fact is he was in power and he was the one who had Paul beheaded. So I guess my point is, look at what Paul's writing here of how Christians should behave in this context. And I know you and I, or a lot of people in America, struggle with the government. We struggle with the government's power and authority. What Paul is basically saying is we need to submit to authorities because they've been ordained by God and that we are to be model citizens. I think that's the key idea. What does it look like for us to be model citizens even in a corrupt government setting? We're to pay taxes and support the government. The things that they taxed people for back then were just ridiculous. They taxed you for the the air you breathed. They taxed you for the number of wheels on your cart. So you really wanted to have a wheelbarrow so you only had one wheel. But if you had four wheels, you were taxed on each, each of the wheels. I mean, they, they, they just went crazy with taxes. That's why he mentions, pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. Now, there is a caveat because the scripture does teach there is a time to disobey when, but only when directly conflicting with God's word. So like, you have the example of, When Nebuchadnezzar built a statue and and told everybody to worship, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're not my God. I'm not worshiping that. They refused. They paid the consequences, but Jesus rescued them. The disciples were thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. And what did they do? When they got out, they they were told, don't you do this anymore. They they said, okay. And then they went and did it. (laughs) They did it more. So there are exceptions to this the the i want to i want to move on the next section in chapter 13 talks about how we live in the last days and we need to wake up from our sleep our salvation is nearer than when we first believed we need to put on the lord jesus christ and make no provision for the, the flesh so i'm going to just tie this into we need to make the most of every opportunity we have The time is short It really is short. And so we need to make the most of every opportunity we have to share the gospel. And last time I spoke, I think, or no, 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 I was making a comment. I talked about this illustration called the golf illustration, how to share your faith with tact. And so I just thought I would just spend a a minute or two filling this out because I'm convinced that one of the reasons we're ineffective in sharing our faith It's not the message that turns people off. It's the messenger and it's our approach. We're either too heavy handed or we just come across like the guy who spent a whole year building a friendship and praying that that he could be a great witness at work. And he had this one guy that he was befriending and serving and loving, but he wasn't talking about, he wasn't sharing any, he wasn't sharing his faith verbally. It was just all through his life. He won his life. And then finally, the guy turns to him. And he says, hey, I have a question for you. And the guy's in, in his heart. He's like, oh, this is it. This is it. He's like, he's going to ask me about Christ. He says, are you a, a vegetarian? He goes, I've been watching your life. I, I have a real serious question I want to ask you, a personal question. you know. Are you a vegetarian? And the guy's like, oh, that's what he got. That's what he saw in my life. Like, so we have to share Christ. We have to use words. When I think of evangelism, I think of of like, people are like golf balls. Some are closer to Christ or the hole than others. And so depending on how far away they are, you need to use different methods. And so a driver is used when the ball is far away from the hole. And in my mind, some good drivers when it comes to evangelism are acts of kindness, acts of service, and then practicing spiritual curiosity. That's just kind of like every once in a while throwing out a question like, hey, you ever think about spiritual things? Where where are you at on your spiritual journey? Or, you know, just just throwing out a question to see what the response is. And you'll be able to judge where a person is, how open they are. Are are they indeed on the T or maybe you find out they're in the fairway. And if they're in the fairway, then you pull out your irons, right? And And to me, that's when I get into things like worldview questions, like, where do you think people come from? What's the purpose in life? What's the biggest problem in the world? What's the solution to that problem? And then, do you think it's possible to know God? If it is, would you be interested in learning how you can? Sharing your testimony, you know, is a great way to share your faith. Just tell your story. Even if you became a Christian when you were a little child, you're still a Christian. You know, what kept you going? What kept you in the faith? But then you'll find that some people are on the green. And for those on the green, you want to learn a gospel illustration. And for me, I use the bridge to life. You know how Jesus is the bridge between us and God and how we can't save ourselves. Our works don't go far enough. And I talk about how you can't jump across the, you know, 10 of us could line up and try to jump across the Grand Canyon. You might get 10 feet farther than me, but we're all going down. And that's how huge this chasm is between us and God, but that God made this bridge for us through Jesus. And some people say, well, the bridge, those those are old, you know, the four spiritual laws, they don't work anymore. Well, they don't work the way they used to work. You used to be able to walk up to somebody and say, hey, have you heard of this four spiritual laws? And then lay them down and then somebody trusts Christ right then. To me, it's where, it's when you use them. If they're on the green, I feel like they can work. I feel like they work well. But then I also try to get people into the Bible just to to learn about Jesus. My approach is I use the gospel of John and uh, just, we just read and discuss it you know, very informally over coffee. Sometimes I, I'll take students to a movie and then after the movie, we go to McDonald's and we talk about the movie and then say, hey, you know, you interested in just reading and discussing the, discussing the Bible? If I feel like they're on the green, that's what we do. And then next thing I know, they're like, hey, are we gonna do that? Are we gonna discuss the Bible again? I'm like, yeah, we are, of course we are. My point in sharing this with you is if you like this, make it your own, think of your own technique. Don't use my technique but think of your own. How would you, what are your drivers? What are your irons? What are your putters? You know, come up with your own unique approach. You don't have to adopt mine. Let me pause here for questions and comments. And then we have one more section. Keith, Keith and I had a blast in the, in the uh, Dead Sea, by the way. <laughs> we were both floating in the Dead Sea. Keith put, he put the mud all over his
7: face. And... If you've never floated in the Dead Sea, it's worth going just to do that. Believe me, it's unbelievable. But Just to amplify on your bridge thing, yesterday I was helping out with the four-year-olds at uh, kids' camp. And the game that we played inside the room was we put a strip of tape down, six foot across, put another strip of tape down that said God. And everybody's supposed to jump to God. Nobody could do it. Even Mr. Keith couldn't do it. So then we put down five block letters, J-E-S-U-S, and they all stepped across. And before each kid stepped across, the leader, she was so good, she just got down with them, almost like a baptism Said. Now I know you can't jump across yourself but if you walk across Jesus is going to stamp out sin because there is a big thing of sin in the middle and if you do that and believe you will get to heaven and each one of them walked across and then the next one came and she got down there and said that exact same words to her and they and she took so much time and so I just want to show you you know the putter example the the bridge example can be used on little kids and it was used just yesterday perfectly so i just wanted to share that that's awesome that is so
0: cool i think dave, dave had a comment or bill i'm sorry
8: yeah the power of the holy spirit to work in us the willing to do according to god's good purpose philippians 2 13 philippians 2 12 says therefore work out your own salvation with fear and trembling a lot of us just simply for whatever reason stop at verse 12 and never really make it into verse 13 and wonder how do we do what God wants us to do. And the thing is, though, it's a promise. My position for myself, and I still work at it, is that we make ourselves available to the working of the Holy Spirit. And if that happens, John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39 has a promise that it's really quite precious. And it and it says, Anyone who believes in me may come. And drink, talk about the water of life. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said this, living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. And we know the day when the Holy Spirit was officially given. And the transformation that happened these 120 that were in that upper room.
0: Mm, amen. Thanks for sharing that. All right, we have one more section and then we'll close off the book of Romans. So we're going to fly through this last section because we're running out of time. In chapter 14 and 15, we get into this how can we get along with other Christians that we disagree with? Like on disputable matters, on non essentials? How do we do it? You know, disunity has always been a major problem with God's people. You see it all throughout the Bible. Almost every ch- local church mentioned in the New Testament, there were divisions to contend with. You know, some things haven't changed. So, you know, here, the disputable matters had to do with meat that was sacrificed to idols. Some people were uncomfortable eating that where Jesus declared all food clean. And so Christians had to decide how are we going to get along? I mean, w- the one is judging the other, the other is despising the, the, the other. And, it happens today. And then there, then there was the issue of days of worship. What, what were special days? And some considered every day special. Others said, no, it's just you know the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. So it got me thinking, what are some of the disputable matters today? And I'm not sure I got them all. I don't think I did, because I think it's probably a list that goes on forever. In this period of the pandemic, we've had the issue of masks. And the issue of vaccines, and you have believers that are very strong convictions on one side or the other, and uh, these are all things that just want to tear us apart and cause disunity. There are some people that you know. There's public schools, private schools, home schools, and again, you have people that are like feel so strongly about like homeschooling or private schooling that as Christians, it's it's like, man, that's kind of, that's kind of tough. I don't know if I agree with you on that. And how how do we agree to disagree with one another? Well, again, I think it goes back to that transformed life. If we're really living out that transformed life, it's not so much about myself anymore. It's not so much about my opinions. We can defer to each other. We can agree to disagree because of Jesus. So in Romans chapter 14, I think this is a key verse. Chapter 14, verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So I think the key principle is here, do whatever it takes not to cause your brother or sister in Christ to stumble, put other people above yourself. And that can be hard to live out at times especially when we have these so much strong convictions. And then I think in v- chapter 15, again, we're not going to read the, read this passage, but I'm just going to pull out a verse here, chapter 15, verses one and two, because he talks about the weak and the strong, the weak in their faith and the strong person. And what what one thing I want to challenge you on is when you see that, <laughs> when we read that, we always put ourselves in the strong person's perspective, right? We're like, well, I'm the strong person, you know, but... Have you ever considered you might be the weak person? I love this chapter 15 verses one and two. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So I think the key principle here is that we we must always choose unity over personal comfort. To choose unity over personal comfort, and if we're not walking in the Spirit, we may not do that. It's easy to complain about the music; the music's too loud. I don't like hymns. I don't like contemporary songs. I, you know, these are all preferences. These are all preferences. But we've got to lay aside. So, and I'm guessing. Let's just pause here because we're running out of time. Comments or questions on this section?
5: In regards to especially the foods, I personally think that black olives and liver are of the devil, but, <laughs> you know, but not everybody does. So, But you know what I find really interesting? You had mentioned about what you're doing with the metaverse, right, with meeting. And so if I'd never heard that from you, if people would talk about the metaverse, even though I don't understand it, I think like in my mind, I think of the word avatar and I think oh, that's not a good thing. We shouldn't get into that. It's, it's, it's living through these other things and I wouldn't see any good in it. But yet when you brought that story out, it had to make me rethink of what I just consider a bad thing. God is using with a brother to make it something for his glory. So I think it's so easy to get into those situations where, oh, that's bad. You can't listen to them, but you're listening to them because they're in the seven. So we draw those lines that I think can really divide us as opposed to allowing everybody to grow in the grace of, of a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Right. And stick with the essentials and, and let God work out those details.
0: Good comment. Thank you. Anybody else? We got a couple over here. I was uh, reading Wiersbe and he said, the big thing we need to be careful of is not to conform to the congregation, but conform to Christ because a lot of congregations are going South and just everybody wants to fit in. They don't want to make waves. So like you're saying, being in the word, conform to Christ Mm -hmm. and make sure that sometimes you may seem to stick out or you may not seem to fit in with what's going on, but you're getting in with
4: Christ, not with the congregation. Amen. Greg, I remember I heard Jim College uh, talk about this verse one time, and it always stuck with me. It's 1218, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And, you know, we try to do that. And there's two great prayers in 15 that I think we should look at in mm. 15, five, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this is prayer really struck me. I've been thinking about it all week in 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy, And peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I just think about that. If you do that, you pray that prayer, you pray the other prayer, you know, you're you're submitting to the Holy Spirit like Bill talked about. And what strikes me is it's fill you with all joy and peace and believing because the more joy and more peace you have in Christ, recognizing, like you said, about the first part of Romans, like Ephesians being positional, Mm -hmm. last part being practical, well, then if you got that joy and peace, you're going to love your brother. You're going to love God more. You're going to grow in grace. So that's a great prayer. We could pray for each other You could pray for yourself, but I think we should pray those two prayers for each other as men.
0: Amen. Romans 15, 13. That's my verse for this year. Every time I get discouraged by what I see on the news or what's happening in the world around me, I just go back to this verse i'm meditating on it i'm like a cow chewing the cud man
3: i'm just like this is this is my verse that's why i I hadn't got to it yet you know all of this comes boils down to a very simple concept and it's called the law of love if you love your brothers and sisters you will do the things that will not cause those offenses and stuff yeah we disagree sometimes with things you know many times you're right we put ourselves on the pedestal that we're better than others. But in any one situation, sometimes we are not the better. We are the minor. And some of the things that we need to learn is when you work through the law of love, you will get it every day in situations. And each situation has to be presented. And as it was brought out, you got to let the Holy Spirit lead you in those situations. You know, every day we meet people along our path. Some you talk to, some you don't. Some you agree with, some you don't. We always have the option that I can disagree with you but I don't have to hang with you, you know? So we need just to keep this, that the whole message of Romans really can be boiled down to love. Love your brother and treat them with love. And whether it's meat, whether it's black olives, you know, whether it's liver, all of these things, you know, if it's gonna cause offense to your brothers. I heard a story once about a guy, I think it was told here actually, where. They knew that they were having a Muslim family come over. And so they went out and they got rid of their old, the dishes brought in brand new dishes so that they could make sure that they were clean. And that brought that Muslim couple to Christ. Mm. These are little things that we can do if we're thinking about how much love we could present to our brothers and sisters along the path. That's great. Hold on to the mic. because I'm gonna ask you to pray in just
0: a second. I wanna cl- read this passage and I'm going you close this in prayer. Listen to how Paul ends this in chapter 16. I commit you to God who is able to make you strong and steady in the Lord, just as the gospel says, and just as I have told you, this is God's plan of salvation for you Gentiles kept secret from the beginning of time. But now as the prophets foretold, and as God commands, this message is being preached everywhere. So that people all around the world will have faith in Christ and obey him to God who alone is wise, be glory forever through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Pray us out,
3: Joe. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to depart this day, this session, we just give you honor, glory, and praise. We thank you for the leading of the teacher this day and the teachings of the others as we learned about Romans and the walk of the, and the teaching of the book of Romans. Father, we'd ask that each person this week be blessed as they go along their journey, that everybody would have safe travels to and from as they go about their daily business. We also thank you, Father, that we have the Holy Spirit within us, that you will lead us each and every day and guide us as we go through this next week. And all that we do, Father, we give you all honor, glory, and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at
0: gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace.
2: See you next time.